call your attention this afternoon to the word of God as found in the last two verses of Second Peter 1. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The subject in our text, beloved, is still the same as in the passage to which I called your attention last Sunday afternoon. The apostle is speaking of the more sure word of prophecy. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we spoke of the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty at the Mount of Transfiguration, and there we received a foretaste and a preview of the glory and the majesty of the glorified Christ. And we were ear witnesses also because he mentions that they heard such a voice from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The apostle had emphasized this, remember, with a view to the hope of the people of God is our hope, our hope of heaven, our hope of glory in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that hope real? Is it firm? Is it rooted in reality? Or is it imaginary and founded on a fable when it looks ahead to the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? That was the issue. And that was the matter which the apostle settled when he asserted that they were eyewitnesses of Christ's power and coming. It is real. What they preach is not a fable. He's still talking about that prophecy. And of that prophecy, he now says, in the words of our text, we must know this first. He's talking, therefore, about a first principle. And he's talking about spiritual knowledge. We must know this first. What? This. That no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. That's negative. 
That's the negative side of the truth. No prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. But, and this is the positive, it is of God. It is the divine word of God. Prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. My text is rather well known. It's been quoted often for the doctrine of infallible inspiration, and yet it has also been frequently misquoted and misinterpreted. So I call your attention to that this afternoon. No scripture prophecy of private interpretation. Let's notice in the first place the fact, in the second place the reason, and in the third place the knowledge. The fact, the reason, the knowledge. A text has been variously read and interpreted, especially, as you might expect, by some who want to deny and get away from the truth of infallible inspiration. Some read it, all prophecy of Scripture is not of private interpretation. Others read it, not every prophecy is of private interpretation. And the text says, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. They do that with Second Peter 1, verse 20, just as they do with that other well-known passage, Second Timothy 3.16, another passage which teaches the inspiration of Holy Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and so on. They change that. Every scripture given by inspiration is profitable. That makes a lot of difference, you see. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every scripture given by inspiration is profitable. That leaves the door open that there are some scriptures not given by inspiration. So here in our text, it makes a great deal of emphasis, of difference, uh, where you put the negative. All prophecy is not of private interpretation. Not every prophecy is, is of private interpretation. No prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. And our King James Version translates correctly. It puts that negative in the right place. No prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. 
that first of all. In the second place, we ought to notice that the apostle here in our text has in mind not only the spoken word, but also the written word. That's also been denied by some. They point to verse 21 of our text, and they say, Holy men of God spake. That doesn't say anything they claim about our Bible, about the written word. Well, in the first place, there is, of course, no fundamental difference between speaking and writing. If the spoken word is inspired, the written word can just as well be inspired. But notice that the text does speak of the written word. It says, no prophecy of the scripture in verse 20 is of any private interpretation. And in verse 19, it speaks of a word of prophecy which we have. So, that refers, therefore, to a collection of writings of books which together make up and convey the one word of prophecy. That's the idea here. A collection of writings which together constitute and convey the one word of prophecy. That principle, by the way, covers the New Testament scriptures as well as the Old, even though at the time of the writing of this second epistle of Peter, the New Testament was not yet completed. Further, notice that the apostle is still speaking, really, of the one more sure word of prophecy, the fundamental idea of which we saw last Sunday is the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But now he is speaking of that one word of prophecy as it is distinguished into various prophecies. Prophecy, as I emphasized last Sunday afternoon, is one whole, one organic whole. You have it in seed form in what is called the protevangel. In Genesis 3:15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. That prophecy, that one prophetic word, grows throughout the old dispensation in the words of Moses and of the prophets and of the psalmist. It is centrally fulfilled in the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and it continues in the apostles. It has one theme, the power of 
coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. His power to overcome death and to give life and his coming ultimately to deliver us from death into the everlasting glory of the new creation. That's the light in the dark place. But, connected with that, there are many, many, many different prophecies in the scriptures. Our Bible, our scriptures, you know, are a wonder, a wonderful book from every point of view. They were written by many different human writers. Some of them we don't even know. We don't know the human writers of several of the books of Scripture. They were written, mind you, over a period of some 1,500 to 1,600 years. From Moses, who was uh, 14, 1,500 years before Christ, to the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation probably around the year 90 after Christ. Not only that, those various parts of Scripture were written in different countries and under many, many different circumstances. They were written in the desert of Sinai. They were written in the land of Canaan. They were written in Babylon. They were written in Persia. They were written in Rome. They were written in Caesarea. They were written in Greece. They were written on the Isle of Patmos. Yet, finally, all those 66 books came together or were brought together into one book. And they were preserved. Don't forget that the scriptures were written under difficult circumstances. In times, for example, when there were those who, if they could, would have destroyed that which was written. They didn't want the scriptures preserved. They were written sometimes by educated writers. Moses, for example, was a a highly educated man, brought up in the court of Pharaoh, learned in all the knowledge of the Egyptians. They were also written by men who were simple Galilean fishermen, Peter and James and John. They were written by prophets. They were written by priests. Some of the scriptures were written by kings. Some of them were written by choir leaders. Many of the Psalms. Some were written by shepherds. 
Amos, the prophet, was a shepherd, as was David, part of his life. Written by herdsmen, written by tent makers, written by fishermen. They were written while men were guiding the flocks. They were written in prison. They were written in palaces and courts of great rulers. The various parts of the Bible were written uh, frequently without knowledge of one another on the part of the writers. And they were certainly written in many instances without the writers being aware at the time of their writing that they were all working on one large book. Moses, for example, could have had no conception of the fact that the five books that he wrote would ultimately be a part of a book that was made up of 66 books. They were written about many different subjects, many of them, and they were written to many different people. Think, for example, of the fact that the epistles were directed to various churches when they were first written. So when you look at the Bible, consider the Bible, you find in the first place that there is as little outward and mechanical unity as imaginable. You couldn't think of a more difficult set of circumstances, if I may put it that way, under which to produce one unified book. Men don't write books that way. If books are written, sometimes you have maybe... uh, two or three or four people collaborating in the writing of a book and they have one editor who is is guiding the whole thing. But in most instances, a book is written in its entirety by one man. And a book is certainly not written over a period of 15, 1600 years. So there's as little outward and mechanical unity in in the Bible as is imaginable. You couldn't you couldn't imagine if you tried to find a more difficult, a more unlikely set of circumstances under which a book could have been produced than was the case with these scriptures. And yet, when you open that Bible, you discover the most beautiful inner harmony conceivable. With one prophetic word, these scriptures fundamentally always speak of the same thing, the power and coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. They do it in many ways, many viewpoints, but that's the content of that book. Now, of that fact, that reality, you have the explanation in the words of our text. No prophecy became, you read literally, no prophecy came into existence of private interpretation. That's the first statement that's made in our text. No prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. The question is, of course, what does the apostle mean by that? There's been... The words themselves, of course, are plain enough. That isn't the problem. No private analysis, no private interpretation. But what does that mean? To what does it refer? Some say that while this means that while the prophecy is there, we have it in the scriptures, it still cannot be understood cannot be interpreted without the guidance of the Spirit. Take a prophecy of Daniel or a prophecy of Isaiah. That prophecy is given to us. We have it in the Scriptures. But we cannot understand it. We cannot interpret it without the guidance of the Spirit. That's the way some interpret our text. Or take illustrations like the dreams of Pharaoh and the dreams of the butler and the baker. The dreams are there. They're given. They are prophetic. Revelatory. But Joseph says, I cannot interpret them. Only God does that. Hence they say, no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. What about that? You may say in the first place that that's certainly true in itself. Even after the prophecy is given, whatever it is, it cannot be left to mere man to interpret it. You must have the guidance of the Holy Spirit in order to interpret that prophecy. That's true. It's a very important script, uh, scriptural principle, too. A principle that we emphasize, for example, at seminary when we, we teach the course that's called hermeneutics, the science of the interpretation of Scripture. Emphasize that the interpretation of Scripture 
Sure, it must be historical and it must be what they call grammatical. But what we must have is the meaning of the spirit. We must have the spiritual interpretation. And that's not a matter of private interpretation. That's a matter of the guidance of the spirit. So even after prophecy is given, it certainly cannot be left to man to interpret it. But that's not the text, notice. text doesn't say that. Because notice what follows after the statement, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. And then it follows, and it follows as a reason, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Notice that those words cannot very well serve as an explanation, a reason for the view that I just described. That doesn't fit. It's not the point at all. The words that I just read refer to the origin of prophecy itself. And that's the subject here. A text refers when it says, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It refers to the prophets themselves. Prophecy whether that's of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or Hosea or Malachi, prophecy itself is not a private interpretation of events by the prophet. That's the negative side of the truth here. It's not so that the prophecy is there first and that then the question becomes how to interpret that prophecy, but the prophet himself is a man who interprets history. He interprets events. And he is given, that's the point of the text, he is given both the events and the interpretation of those events. Take, for example, the first coming of Christ. That's directly a predicting of an event. And it was predicted many times in the scriptures. But that must be interpreted by the Holy Spirit. Same is true in the New Testament. True, for example, of the cross. The cross, as such, is simply an event. A man called Jesus Christ in the year 33 A.D. was crucified upon the order of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. That's the event. 
the interpretation of that event that the cross is the power of God unto salvation. That the cross is atonement for the sins of his people. I say the interpretation of that event is not private. It's not of men. It's not a human solution. It's not of human invention. It's of the apostles by the Spirit of Christ. find that emphasized very often in Scripture. Apostle emphasizes that uh, in the letter to the Corinthians, for example. I think I can lay my finger on that passage. 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 4, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And a little later, verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. And then he goes on and explains that, and explains that the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. He emphasizes that the words which they speak are words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. That's fundamental here. The same is true of the transfiguration. Transfiguration is an event that was witnessed by the disciples. But the prophetic word a picture of the coming of the Lord. I say that prophetic word is not a private interpretation. The question is next, how then does that come about? Our text answers that in verse 20 negatively by saying prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. That's the negative side of it. And the positive is that it was given when men spake from God as being moved by the Holy Spirit. But language in itself, I think, is quite plain. really doesn't need any explanation. It's very plain in saying that nothing of man caused prophecy to come. It's all of God. That's a very important truth. It's important because it 
denies what has often been called the human factor in scripture. There's often been a distinction made in reformed theology, continental theology as well as uh, Presbyterian theology. A man like Dr. Warfield, well-known Presbyterian scholar, makes the same distinction. Distinction has been made between a human factor and a divine factor in the production of Holy Scripture. Sometimes they use the language secondary authors and primary author. God is the primary author. Men are the secondary authors. It's undoubtedly true that 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 language was not always meant for ill. I think that's true. And you can attach a, uh, a relatively good interpretation to that language too. But it's nevertheless dangerous to use that language because it has led to the ultimate denial of the infallibility of the scriptures. We ought to understand that and understand why, too. A Bible, you know, is a tremendous wonder not so easy to uh, describe that wonder in its various details. And down through the history of doctrine, the attempt has been made to do that, and often an attempt was made well-meaningly, not out of evil motives, but I say that's not so easy. Not so easy to explain that in such a way that that Bible remains the Word of God, period. That's fundamental, you see. According to this view of a human and a divine factor, the idea then is that men and their place and their history and their circumstances in life are used by the Holy Spirit just as he finds them. That's the human factor. And that the Spirit used those men with their character and their history and their circumstances in place, use them to speak or to write God's word, that's the divine factor. 
as long as you leave it that way and maintain that with with uh, careful boundaries, that's not so bad. But it's been misused, and you can understand too. After all, when you say that there's a human factor in Scripture, you see, man did part of it. It's a factor. Man partly made Scripture. Then that, that becomes a, the ground of a dangerous error, you see. That error has popped up various times in church history. It arose, for example, in the, well, maybe I better not even say it because you don't know very much about that. It arose in our own history as Protestant Reformed churches way in, back in the 1920s in what was called the Jansen case. Uh, Jansen was a professor in Calvin Seminary. This was before the Common Grace case already. Jansen was a professor in Calvin Seminary who was found guilty of what is called higher criticism of teaching that there's a human element in the scriptures and that there is error in the scriptures. But you've had it in other forms. Probably the most recent uh, form of that is in the writings of uh, Professor G.C. Birkauer in the Netherlands. He wrote a series of doctrinal studies, and one of them was on the doctrine of Holy Scripture. And he, uh, well, what shall I say, he monkeys and monkeys and monkeys with the truth concerning inspiration until he uh, ends up by saying that Holy Scripture is the word of God and the word of man. And some, that's, that's a literal quotation. The word of God and the word of man. So you understand, beloved, the moment you make Holy Scripture in any degree the word of man, you've lost the Scripture. As soon as you do that, then I can say, well, uh, verse 10 of 2 Peter 1, that's the word of man. And somebody else here in the congregation can say, no, no, that's the word of God. But chapter 2, verse 1, that's the word of man. And somebody else can say, well, Matthew is the word of God, but Mark is the word of man. You see, you don't have any scriptures left anymore then. You've lost it. You've lost it totally. You get a human element and a divine element in scripture. That's the way in uh, recent times they've gotten rid of the truth of creation. 
fact, they've gotten rid of the truth of of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. They distinguish. Bear in mind now, this is because of the divine and the human element. They say you must compare the Bible to uh, a package. Say you're going to send a package to America. Well, first of all, you have the box. And then you have the packing material to protect whatever you are going to mail so it doesn't get smashed and damaged. And then way in the center, you have the thing that you are really going interested in shipping to America. So it is with the truth. You have to strip away the box, the wrapping material. You have to strip away the packaging, the protective material, and then finally you get at that little gem of the Word of God that is left in there someplace. And of course, that's not work for, for common ordinary people like you and me. You have to have a learned professor who's going to do that for you. They're the only ones who can understand the business. And so you have no Bible left, and the people of God have no Bible left. They end up, you see, by treating Scripture like any other book, treating it like Plato's Republic, or like uh, Shakespeare's plays, Paul's individuality, they say, was not suppressed by the Spirit, but it was used as it was, so that Paul and the Spirit co-labor. And so, you get a divine element and a human element in the contents of Paul's writings. The same was true of Peter, and the same was true of John. That also results in the fact that theologians nowadays talk about the theology of Paul or the theology of Peter or the theology of John. Well, I'm not interested in the theology of Paul or of Peter or of John. I maintain, beloved, that there is one theology in the scriptures. It's not Pauline, and it's not Johannine, and it's not Petrine. It's divine. The Word of God. But that's the way scripture is denied. Now, our text denies this. Our text says, Holy Scripture is all of God. Prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men from God spake as they were moved, born, carried, is the word that's used there, by the Holy Ghost. 
Let's look at that a moment. How does that happen? What does that mean? Does it mean, for example, that that the writers of Scripture were something like uh, uh, private secretaries of God, stenographers? I can do that at home, you know. I can uh, dictate my work on a dictaphone machine. And I can take the cassette recording up to the office at the seminary and say to our secretary now, you type that from the tape for me. Saves me the work of typing. Is that the way the Bible was? Was Paul a, a sort of a secretary to the Lord? The Lord just dictated his word? That's what's called the mechanical theory of inspiration. I don't really know of anybody that ever held that theory. Heretics always like to impute that theory to people who maintain the true view of inspiration and of Scripture. They say, oh, you teach mechanical inspiration. Well, we don't. We don't. That isn't the way the Bible was given. You can tell plainly, for example, that the language of Paul, who reasons in his writings, he has because and Wherefore, and therefore, and thus, and hence, is quite different from the Apostle John and his writings. You don't find that in the writings of John. They have a different style. So they were not simply private secretaries who wrote down what what was dictated to them. Not at all. Notice, men from... God speak. That's what you read literally. Men from God speak as they were moved, carried by the Holy Spirit. What does that imply? (coughs) Just as God conceived of his people, (coughs) not simply as a mass of people, but as an organism, one plant, one body in Christ. So God also conceived of the organic whole of this word. The word is a whole, as I said last Sunday, not just a, a sum total of parts which add up to the word of God. Christ is the heart and center of that revelation. But it grew organically. The Bible came historically, as we saw earlier this afternoon, over a period of 1,500 years. And it came by the operation of the Spirit of Christ working in special organs of Christ's body. Organs of inspiration. Where did they come from? Did the Holy Spirit just discover them? Did he, did he find a David and say to himself, well, that would be a fine fellow because I want a psalm written like Psalm 23, so I'll put David to work on. Is that the way that worked? No, no, beloved. 
God doesn't work that way. Those organs of inspiration are ordained and planned from eternity and called into existence in time. The Spirit didn't just find suitable men as the occasion demanded. They were divinely prepared in, in every respect, not just from the point of view of their spiritual life, but from the point of view of their time and their circumstances and their birth and their background and their work. You couldn't expect, let's say, a bricklayer to write a psalm about a shepherd, like Psalm 23, that took a shepherd. God didn't just find him, he prepared him. David had to be a shepherd so that he would be able to write Psalm 23 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He had to be king of Israel, God's anointed, so that he would be able to write a psalm like Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And so on. The same is true of the prophet Isaiah and his children. They were ordained and prepared so that Isaiah might serve as the servant of Jehovah and write about it. You read of Paul that he was called from his mother's womb to be an apostle. He didn't know anything about it then. His mother didn't either. He was called. These men are not simply a human framework on which God works out the design of his divine word that would spoil it, then, then the framework would still be human. With all the shortcomings of that which is human, I'm not just talking about sin, all kinds of shortcomings. But the whole of the scriptures is of God. Compare it to a, a, a piece of embroidery work. The fabric and the embroidery upon that fabric. They're both of God. They're a wonder work of divine grace, ordaining the organs of inspiration, preparing them, guiding them infallibly in speaking and writing God's word. And it all, beloved, converges in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the eternal word who speaks God's word through the Bible. But we mustn't end with dogmatics on preaching this afternoon. Gospel. Our text says, knowing this first. Do you know it? 
You know what? I'm not talking about just head knowledge. Anybody can learn what I said this afternoon. Even a child. But the natural eye, the natural understanding doesn't see the light of the divine word, beloved. And you can't convince a man by logical proof either. The natural man has a different problem. He's blind. He's spiritually blind. Apostle is talking here about the knowledge of faith. The testimony of the Spirit is in that word. That's his word. Remember the Lord said that to his disciples before he went to the cross that he would send them the Spirit and that the Spirit would lead them into all truth. He would lead them into all truth. And the Spirit, beloved, never speaks of himself. He speaks of Christ. Always speaks of Christ. That's the testimony we have in these scriptures. And subjectively, we have it in our hearts. The Spirit is poured out in the church and its members. Knowing this first, that's a first principle. Not just a matter of time. Know this first, and know this second, and know that third, and so on. No, no. It's an underlying first principle. Take this principle away, beloved. The principle that the scriptures are the infallibly inspired word of God. Period. And you take away foundation of the whole truth of the whole church the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone remember that if you do you know that first then you recognize the light from God that light in a dark place and you submit to that word unconditionally and you open your ears and you are willing to let the light shine in your heart and willing to have your heart cured of sin and of transgression and to walk in the light and you give heed to that word as to the light shining in a dark place until the day dawn, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the day star, the morning star, arises in your hearts. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word and testimony, but thou apply thy word unto our hearts. Dismiss us now with thy blessing and go with us in the week that lies ahead. Lead and guide us by thy spirit and word.
Guard us against all sin and temptation. We ask it for Jesus, our Redeemer's sake. Amen. Our last psalm is Psalm 100. Stand as we sing. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth, his praise forth tell. Come ye before him and rejoice. Psalm 100.